Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi everyone and welcome to Racing Lives. My name's Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot. And in this podcast, I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest, and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. I'd like to start this week's podcast slightly differently and speak about myself a little bit. You see, this year marks the start of a different life for me. I left Alpine F1 team in March after eight incredible years with the team. I loved it, but I was burnt out. I was exhausted physically and mentally, and I needed a break. I've now started my own company and I'm loving the change, and the projects I'm involved in so far are brilliant. But there's one thing I absolutely did not want to change, and that is this podcast. Recording Racing Lives every year is one of my favourite things to do, and I love reading your messages after I publish each episode. We have a brilliant list of guests planned for this year and I cannot wait for you to hear them all. Thank you as always for your support. It means the world to me. And now, on with the show. My guest today is a two-time marathon runner, lover of tea and comes from beautiful Ireland. And although we will definitely chat about these things on this podcast, the main thing she is known for is Formula One engineering. Starting as a graduate trainee at the McLaren Formula One team back in 2009, fresh from studying mechanical engineering at the Queen's University in Belfast, my guest has gone from strength to strength, going through graduate engineering, design engineer and then performance engineer in just six years. She then joined the team now known as Aston Martin F1 team as a performance and strategy engineer, then senior strategy engineer and most recently head of race strategy. She was featured by Forbes in the 2016 30 Under 30 list for manufacturing and industry in Europe, was an ambassador for the Make It in Great Britain campaign, and has gone around the world several times thanks to the Formula One circus, most often seen sitting at the Aston Martin pit wall during races. My guest is an awesome engineer and strategist, but she's also kind, fun and brilliant to chat to. It's my absolute pleasure to welcome my guest today, Bernie Collins. It's very kind. Well, you're very kind. It's nice to chat to you. Thank you for coming on. <laughs> I'll start right at the beginning. First of all, I always call you Bernie, but your real name is Bernadette. So should I have introduced you as Bernadette Collins? No, Bernie's fine. I'm very easy on that. So don't worry either way. Cool. Um, I will start with my very first question. It's where I start every podcast. Bernie, when and where did your racing life begin? 
Um, it was probably quite late for me relative to some people and that loads of people have watched F1 when they're little and always want to work in racing or some sort of motorsport or whatever. But I sort of did engineering because I didn't know what I wanted to do and it was like a really broad degree. Um, and then like racing and motorsport even came much, much later. Um, sort of halfway through that degree, I took part in like a student competition. Um, so it was, and I'd only really, I guess the dream only really became reality or even really a dream um, at the end of my graduation when the McLaren programme came up. Um, and then I started to apply for that and it sort of was one of those things where we thought, well, maybe this is possible. So yeah, a long time ago. Were you always a fan of motorsport? Um, when I was really young, you know, in primary school or maybe the very beginning of secondary school, we definitely would have watched F1 at home. F1 would have been on and I would have been interested in it and, and understood it. We wouldn't necessarily went to any of the more like grassroots motorsport or I didn't do any time in carts or anything like that. Um, so yes, at that stage I was a fan, but then you get into sort of your more teenage years or even in university when I was doing engineering actually, we become a lot busier and those sorts of things fall off. So there's a period sort of just before I began to think about joining motorsport actually where I wasn't really following what was going on. So I was a fan a long time ago, but to say I've always been a fan is probably incorrect. Yeah, fair enough. Um, we all get busy, don't we? And then you, you sort of like leave the pastimes, especially if it's tied with your childhood and it was your parents watching, then, you know, you dip in and out of it. Um, but do you have an earliest memory of motorsport at all? Not really. Like, I remember sitting and watching the TV and you're aware of some of the names, you know, like Michael Schumacher and stuff at that time. But I don't necessarily remember. I know there's people who sort of remember races from their watching it at that sort of age and stuff, but I, I don't necessarily have that, but I just have, you know, this generic memory of, of watching it on TV and hearing some of the names and seeing some of the cars, but not really a specific one. Yeah, it's the same for me. I had um, my uncle. My uncle's always been into Formula One. I remember being at his house. I was clearly too busy playing with my cousins, um, especially in the garden. But I know that on Sundays he would tune in and watch the races. Um, that's exactly, yeah, that's where my, my memories come from as well, definitely. Do you have a feeling that you chose motorsport or that motorsport chose you? Did it come knocking at the door? You almost didn't have a choice. Yeah, I think probably the second one in that motorsport chose me. Like, I, there's lots of people, you know, I get a lot of contacts, people asking for careers advice or how to get to this position, and people who from a really young age always want to do motorsport. And it happened more, like, organically for me. You know, the I did engineering. As part of that, there was a formula student thing, so I did that. Then we sort of went forward from there. So it just sort of happened, and sort of that's been the way a lot of my career is stuff just sort of falling into place rather than a definitive decision to do something the obvious aspect of your job is seeing you sitting on the pit wall during sessions but you do so much more than that can you explain what the job was a strategist or possibly even an engineer because you're engineer first and obviously became strategist as a result of that what is it actually like yeah it's really split depending on you know what aspect of motorsport you're in but if, you, if we think of just the trackside role in any of the engineering capacities really what you're trying to do is get the best out of the car, the driver for any given event. Now that involves a lot of looking at the specifics of that track. So the week before or two weeks before maybe, you know, the engineers that work with the drivers, the race engineers, they're thinking about that track, what their car setup might need to be, what the driver needs to do, what their simulator sessions are, all of that sort of thing. For me as a strategist, it's the same idea. So um, in the week before a race, you're starting to think, okay, what is the likely things that's going to come up this week, you know? 
is it Malaysia and you're likely to get a rainstorm for qualifying or think of all the environmental stuff to do with where you're going but then think of like what's happened in races in the past you know um, Hungary is it generically a one-stop so are we going to have to try and make a one-stop work so you have this sort of like week to you know three days to a week of prep thinking about the event trying to plan what you might need to do and then try and formulate a plan with the other engineers so we work as a big team and you know ultimately it's not just strategy that, that makes some calls on Sunday everyone's involved so we need to get the best out of the whole package so for me you know I'm really interested in the long run data if the race is if the race is more important than qualifying or sometimes you know just the qualifying run if that's more important than the race and what we mean by that is races as difficult to overtake so I, I've got an agenda of what I would most like to do on Friday practice sessions for example but so does everyone else so we need to bring that together and get the best combination for the team um so yeah a lot of prepping and what I did and then post race again if you think of that is a lot of analysis of what we did and why and what worked and what didn't so you know should we have pitted one lap earlier should we have you know done a two-stop rather than a one-stop should we have fitted a different tire should we have done you know something completely different and some of that analysis just you know what can we do better next time but some of that is well how do we learn to make a better decision with the information we have next time round? strategy is a really interesting one because as well as just looking inward, we spend a lot of time looking outward. So we spend a lot of time looking at the other nine teams on the grid. What did they do? Why did they do that? What decisions did they make? Did they have some information that we didn't have? How could we have reacted more to what they've done? So there's sort of, I end up doing, you know, post-race strategy for 10 teams, really. I'm trying to say, you know, who did what right and what can we learn from them? How can I do, you know, how can I gain that experience for my own learning next time around? That's one of the things I wanted to touch on, actually, because the analytics part of what you do is huge. And as you touched on, you're not just looking at your team, you're looking at competitors as well. You're looking at previous years and then you're looking post-race at what's happened and you're looking at everyone. And it's a mix of data and also human behaviour, because effectively the people making the decisions are people based on data. How do you deal with that much information? How, how do you even condense it into something that can then make sense and be passed on to the rest of the team who are possibly not as tactically minded as you might be or the drivers who, you know, don't want to hear an engineering brief? Yeah, I think it's really, it comes down to sometimes categorising what's the most important thing or, you know, some let's say it's convincing someone of an argument to, to pit one lap or another, whatever it might be. It's what do they absolutely need to know to get the point across versus all of the data that's available. We work as like a structured team and most teams are the same where they have a number of people at the factory who are doing more analytical stuff, looking at a bigger picture, looking at um, more of the data and then feeding that sort of up the chain to me on the pit wall or in some of the other branches of engineering to someone different on the pit wall such that the person making the decisions is fed like a sort of filtered version of the data so you've got different people with very specific roles looking at very different things such that you know because if I had to look at all of the data myself without that background team it would be nearly impossible to get the right answer as much as we do um, and some of it is like as you sort of touched on if it was if we always just stopped on the best lap everyone it would be very mundane but actually you've got this human interaction which is why we don't end up with just some 
you know artificial intelligence doing the strategy you've got this sort of like interaction of what you think other people are going to do or when you think they're going to do it so there's a real like minefield of stuff that goes into that so it's a really interesting problem actually um well yeah i find it interesting but maybe not everyone does i find it interesting as well because a lot of it is i look at it from a root of psychology and human behavior which is what i love um and in in that i see so much you know i see so much about how people interact and how people behave and how it translates on track which i love have you ever come away from a race and looked at a strategy either your own or from another team and saw something you know when you watch a race it's very easy to just focus on the leaders or if you're working for a team focus on your team and you're seeing a different race than everyone else's have you ever come away from a race and it might not have been obvious to anyone else, but you're looking at another team strategy or your strategy and thought that was incredible what they did. Yeah, I think there's quite a few, you know, if I think just of our own examples like that, often people like, you know, again, it's for strategy. Often people look at the final result and say, wow, that was really good. Or, wow, you did about average there. You know, particularly the midfield battles, as you say, often go unnoticed you know, you know, rightly or wrongly, the TV focuses on the top few. And I think it's a really difficult story to tell the strategy of all of the teams. So, you know, it, it probably is correct that it, it focuses on the top ones and that's an easier story to tell. But I've come away from races and, you know, there, there are a few examples where I've walked away and you get to the airport lounge on a Sunday night and people are congratulating you on your strategy because, you know, you finished on the podium or whatever. And all you can think of are all the mistakes that were made during that race and how it was a terror, you know, if you went back and did it again, you would do hundreds of things differently. But yeah, from the outside, because it's a better finished position than we were expected to be in, people think, oh, it must have been brilliant strategy. And equally, I've had races where, you know, there, there was a Brazil a few years ago in a wet where we didn't do a single pit stop. And you might look at that and think, oh, strategy must be easy if you don't do any pit stops because it's just red flags. And we just lost out a podium in the sort of final laps. And people were sort of commiserating me because you were so close to the podium position. But it's one of those things where every decision we made in that race, I felt, was right. And we should have never been in that position. So I didn't really feel like losing the podium at that point was, a dis you know, obviously it's disappointing. But actually, from a strategy point of view, I wouldn't go back and ever change that. And, you know, there's a few good examples of where people think, oh, that must have been really hard. But actually, you know, I can't change the pace of the car. I can only change the bits that I can change. And then, you know, equally the races where you've made some pretty poor decisions and you've learned a lot from, but people think is fantastic because of what you've, you know, finished eventually. And I, I just find it is because it's a difficult story to tell and it is because it doesn't come across on the TV that well. But yeah, it's you, you get loads of these things or, you know, like you say, we, when we look at other people's strategies and they've reacted to something or boxed on a lap, you know, a bit at risk of traffic, whatever. And you think, God, we, would we have been brave enough to do that? And then the question becomes, have they just been really lucky there or have they known something we don't know? And that's a really interesting problem to try and figure out. Um, and try and get your head around what you possibly, you know, if you were that strategist, how you could have ever made that decision. Oh, it's brilliant. I, I find it fascinating down to 
just endlessly. One of my favorite things to do um, when I was working at the team was to listen to the strategy channel, which did not happen very often. I was very privileged when I could. And um, I just, oh my God, you learn so much about how our race is going and, and all, you know, how it's coming together. You've got such a much bigger appreciation for what we're trying to do when you can actually hear that. I always find it funny that one when someone, you know, like in your previous position will come to me after race and go, oh, I liked when you were doing this. I was like, oh, I keep forgetting that those sorts of people are listening to that channel. I'm just like, oh, I should have been more focused on what I was saying. It's interesting. Nah, it's a private channel. I was actually going to make the joke to say, I hope no one ever tries to broadcast that because it needs to be a place where people can say the wrong thing and then make the right choice. So definitely. But yeah, I always felt very privileged when I used to listen. What would you say is the biggest misconception about your job? I guess from a strategy point of view, the biggest misconception is that there's always a right answer. So people always feel that there should definitely always have been. And sometimes the answer is not always that clear cut. There's maybe good reasons for doing one thing or another. I guess the other thing is really, like I said earlier, I touched on, it is a combination of people. There's a combination of factors. You know, it might be, tire life limited or sometimes we can't do a pit stop because engine temperatures are too high and we have to go longer or sometimes we have to stop earlier because there's some damage in the brake duct and the brakes are overheating so but people I think from the outside it's very easy to miss all that and then just say oh it should have been really clear what you did um but that's not always so clear at the time and especially the internet the internet loves a black and white situation and yeah things like mechanical um, issues with the car aren't seen on television again you can't see the temperature of the brakes you can't see whether you need to do another lap to cool the car because you were stuck in traffic that's harder to tell as you say it's a hard story to tell but it affects your your choices of course exactly I should point out I feel like I'm waiting for the right moment to say it but I want to point out that we're joining you at a pretty exciting time because you have left Formula One you've left the team um, after what was it 13 years in Formula One doing what you do and actually want to touch upon the posts um, the and the way that Aston Martin said goodbye to you which was so heartfelt and so nice it was lovely to witness and it spoke volume about how well regarded you are within the um, the team and the industry um, and I, I loved watching that from afar but I absolutely loved watching it and I wanted to say you've set up your own company um, and you know wh what's going on what what are you planning to do can you say <laughs> um well I can sort of say but yeah to touch on the Aston Martin thing like the, the process of, of leaving a team, very rarely we leave a team that we're not transferring to another team. Like I don't think it's that widely known out there, but you know the people transfer teams quite regularly or move from one place to another and you've got this sort of six months notice period where normally you get sort of put in a corner and hushed away from the latest IP and hopefully in that six months you forget everything you've learnt and you move to your new company a little less well off than you were before. But to leave in the way that I did, not going to another F1 team or, you know, not directly transferring somewhere else meant that I could still do what I loved and meant that, like, the, during those six months, because, you know, inevitably we, we work really hard and inevitably some, you sort of start to only see the negatives and not so many of the positives. But through that six months, I started to remember, you know, why I loved it, why I enjoyed it. I started to really appreciate being on the pit wall. I started to really appreciate, you know, time with the drivers or 
took time to speak to people in the paddock or go upstairs in paddock club and take some pictures you know like do like I've probably taken more pictures in the last six months than I've ever taken just because you you know that version of you is coming to an end and that's been really lovely and there was a lot of tears but that's okay I think um but yeah it was good so yeah going forward there's not a master plan for want of a better word there's some sort of freelance opportunities to try and help out some companies that are trying to explain F1 strategy, try and help a little bit maybe with the visualisation of strategies, how that looks for sort of some of the companies that try and promote F1, so F1 themselves, for example. So there's lots of like little things happening in the background, but nothing really set in stone yet. So it's a bit sort of, yeah, see where it goes. Um, yeah, so I have my own company as sort of like a consultant, freelance type thing and a bit of time to sort of relax and stop and break and then, yeah, open to the opportunities that there are going forward. You know, it seems like F1's really taken off. It seems like, you know, things like this podcast and stuff are just finding more and more traction all the time. Um, so, yeah, hopefully there are opportunities out there. You know, and initially at least a lot of those will come from F1. It doesn't feel real currently. It feels like, you know, everyone's on a break. And the first time I sit down to watch a race that I'm not at the race, that'll be, I think, because that, that's not happened in, in so long. So that'll be the point, I think, that it gets real. Or when my running runs out, money runs out at the end of the month, <laughs> one of the two. Yeah, um, obviously I'm in a very similar position to you. And first of all, I'm so happy for you in terms of what it's going to feel like once you've rested enough and you've gained that sort of like colour that comes back in your cheek from just having not been completely jet lagged and on planes every two minutes. So I'm very excited for that, for, for you to experience that and to watch races and, and see what it's like when you're not in them because I'm doing that at the moment and I'm loving it I'm fine I'm, I'm now understanding that I scream at the television I never knew I would do that I, I've never done that but I'm very passionate and, um, and I, I have shouted drivers names and people at different teams because I know them and you feel completely involved so yeah this is a lovely experience I really hope you enjoy doing it too <laughs> I feel like watching it without all of the data is going to be really hard i'm adding screens and they are all data driven just to understand so yeah you've got all that coming and people don't like watching races with me because they're like what are you doing and also i wanted to touch on what you said which was that thing where you're almost able to gain distance in your final few days or you know few weeks um when you're leaving the job again i got to experience that as well and, and it's exactly that by the time it got to my last race i mean first of all i was holding back the tears massively and i think they got me you know by the time the the grid was building up that was it the, the floodgates opened but it was finally it's almost like my senses were coming back because I could see everything in color I could feel I could hear I could taste you know what Formula One is when you're not head down having to complete so many tasks so quickly and ensure so many things happen you're almost like able to put your head up even though you're still doing the job but there's sort of like the pressure or the next event's not there anymore and you could just yeah I felt like I was watching back in color where maybe things had been quite gray before and it was you know it, I felt very privileged to to have done what I'd done and then to be able to leave it it was yeah it's quite an emotional thing to do <laughs> 
But now I want to touch upon a few things, which is, again, I think your answer is going to change in the next few months, but let's base it on what you've done in the last few years. How have you defined success for yourself? What was the thing that was, because you can't rely on a win being your definition of success because that's rare. So how were you measuring success for yourself? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting. And for Cindy, Aston Martin, we some point have had real ups and downs over the years. And and some of them, you know, even in the down times, we've worked really well as a team and it's been really good fun. But I can't change the fundamental pace of the car. I can't take a P8 or P9 team car and, and put it on the podium always. So it's just trying to make the most of the opportunities when they arise. And we spend a lot of time going through the strategy after weekend and saying, what could we have done better? What we have changed? How could we learn? So for me, or for me personally, I define success as, as still learning. So I really enjoy learning, you know, fundamentally that's what also drives me is continuing to learn, continuing to improve, continuing to, you know, be a better team, person, whatever, whatever it might be. So as long as we're continually improving and finding new things to work on and, and sometimes when you have that sort of low time of you're not competing necessarily well in races, it's sort of a nice time to restructure some things or try different things within a strategy group and you should just always be building back towards the point where you have a car that you can put in those really strong positions. So I'm quite driven that way. Um, you know, obviously the podiums are lovely. But you, you just can't mark your success by that because we are a team. And I guess it exists in lots of team sports where an individual needs to mark the performance differently to the team. I, I don't have a huge background in, in team sports, you know, even when I was younger, but it is relentless what we do now. And it's very hard. You spend a lot of time away from home, a lot of time with people that you've not chosen to be with. I was very, very lucky the team I worked with were amazing people and we got on really well and it was a really nice environment. So it's just, yeah, it's 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 an interesting one. But for me personally, it's learning and that's sort of why I've decided to, to make the move that I have because I probably could have been head of race strategy for the next, I don't know, X many years. And But it's just a chance to learn and try something different. That's how I work as well. So it's lovely to see that that's... Um... That's the same thing for you. I measure the success of each year looking back on what I'd managed to learn. And I think a lot of my decisions, again, my decisions were very visible, obviously, because they affected the content of the team was putting out. But they were very much driven by what skill did I want to learn that year or what skill, you know, what did I want to achieve? So it's like, oh, we're doing more videos this year. Yeah, because I want to learn how to do that. <laughs> it was absolutely 90% of the decisions were like based on that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, you touched on it slightly, but um, I wanted to address it properly. Competition. Obviously, motorsport is highly competitive, and I find that it filters down to everyone I've always joked to say you know as a press officer you would actually look left and right to see who published their their press release first and and who was last um how did that translate in your role did you experience competition as well yeah I think you know obviously strategy in itself is is highly competitive in terms of what you do or how you work within a team within the team we try and work as closely as we can but it is one of those highly competitive things and especially, you know, the real high points of that pressure or adrenaline or Saturday, Sunday, so the qualifying and the race situation where you're trying to achieve the absolute best. And, you know, and like when I say when you're reviewing all the other teams or reviewing their strategies, you you do sort of have in your mind who you think are the best and have in your mind who you think are the worst. And then you're trying to make sure that, you know, where you sit in that group, but I'd hate to have to rank it. Um, even to put myself in it, I'd hate to have to do that. But it's it's one of those things where, you know, you are always trying, striving for improvement and very competitive. And it's, it's an interesting question that someone asked me recently is, how do I think I'm going to fulfil that competitive need outside of Formula One? And yeah, I don't I don't have the answer to that, but it's a really interesting problem, isn't it? And at the moment, I don't feel a strong desire for it, but it's not been that long. So I don't know if when we get to, you know, a few weeks' time, if I'm going to be like racing somebody down the stairs or, you know, what, whatever it might be. It's just like there's obviously that competitive edge in all of us that have worked in Formula One for that amount of time. And there's obviously that drive to improve and learn. And I think you're going to have to really work on fulfilling that need somehow. And I've not got there yet, but let's see. <laughs> It'll be an interesting one to bond. It'll be very funny when you see it happening, actually. I'll be like, huh, <laughs> I've had to learn to be still. And by that, I mean not necessarily sitting at a desk, but by not getting on a plane every two minutes. 
and um and actually I, i'm terrible at it and i have been getting on planes i've been picking projects um that actually mean that i have to go work on site because i knew it but i'd forgotten it i'm terrible at working in the same place every day i don't do well within the same four walls i'd forgotten that because obviously it was never happening but no it's still there I, that had to change straight away <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. The things we find out. What is the exact moment when you realise motorsport is not glamorous at all? Well, I don't know what the moment was that I realised it, but there's quite a few things that people, you know, when I've, like I say, the last six months I've taken a lot of photos and a lot of them have been, this is the shit that people don't realise is happening. You know, and one of them was Miami, new event, brilliant event. It was like a fantastic event. But carrying your bag your suitcase through a dusty car park and then getting che you know people are getting changed at the end of this dusty car park just because you're traveling home that night and you sort of think this isn't what people expect we're doing you know and there's just there's so many little things like that that you think this is definitely not what i signed up for and it, most of it i would say is around the traveling aspect of it but then there's always a few things like that where you just think, mm, this isn't as glamorous as people would lead you to believe. And it's normally the Sunday night fly home. Definitely. I, I would I always laugh. Drive to Survive doesn't cover Sunday nights, do they? Which is probably a good thing because we really do get changed in the back of, in the literally in the back of a car or possibly hidden between two doors. <laughs> literally taking off a very sweaty uniform to put on a slightly less sweaty one and then fly home through the night all of that you know it's getting back at like the middle of the night and then driving yourself home when you come in and it's like i've had so many monday mornings where i walked down the stairs and my suitcases i'm still there and i'm like oh nobody's magic to that away from me and sort of two days to wash it all to go away again and there's so many little things like that that you just think yeah okay <laughs> Yeah, that's the backstage bit for sure, definitely. Either that or when you get completely drenched in the rain somehow and, you, you know, there there is no change, there is no way to dry, you're just going to have to go about your day completely soaking. How do you balance, or how did you balance, I imagine it's a lot better now, um, your work with the rest of your life? And crucially, actually, having no left, are you enjoying being home? Yes, I am enjoying being home. Let's start with that. Um, it's really, really difficult, the balance, and I guess that's my main driver for, for not doing it anymore. I don't think on the outside people realise how difficult it is, the balance. Particularly now when you've got to the point of doing triple headers, you know, that was the sticking point for me. You know, you're away three weeks in a row, then you come home, then I've still got my analysis to do. So I actually end up working four weeks in a row. I was very fortunate that my other half also works in Formula One. Um, so very understanding and a lot of the time in the same situation so I was very fortunate that my personal life and my you know work life were very inter intertwined uh, largely and I, there was always the opportunity when you were away to, to meet up or whatever so that was always good but there was lots of things um, you know weddings you've missed or christens you've missed or you know various life events that you've missed Again, I was very fortunate during my time that I never had to rush home for some sort of family emergency or whatever. But, you know, you know so many people that I've had from the other side of the world and it must feel really helpless at that point. The funny thing is that a lot of times people will go, oh, like, what's your hobbies? It's like, I, I don't have hobbies. <laughs> There's stuff that you give up to do it and you, you do it because you love it. So, like, let's, let's not be too negative. I love it. I enjoy the travelling. I did it at a time in my life when 
I could stay and do the extra holidays. I could see a lot of the world. We went to some really interesting places and I did make the most of it. I tried to make the most of every opportunity. If I could stay out after a race and go visit somewhere or whatever, I would do it. You know, obviously um, the whole COVID brought an end to some of that. But yeah, like I'm just sort of now trying to explore what life is like on the outside, which is really like, you know, I'm setting my own diary of things. I'm organising to meet friends. I'm organising family to come over. I've just recently had a little nephew, which is like the first little nephew in our family. So, you know, I can go and spend more time with them. The most exciting thing that's happening, not to um, degrade my little nephew, but I'm, I'm getting a guide dog on Friday. So I, I signed up to volunteer for guide dogs ages ago, but, but we're never at home and obviously not in a position to help out. So um, on Friday, let the guide dog come in that we can sort of have a have a dog at home, which we, you know, obviously with all the travel and never been fit to do. So there's loads of little things like that, that, okay, you know, you shouldn't give up your career in Formula One because you really want a dog, but that is something I really want to do. So yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely love that. And it's very exciting. I just got shivers, actually, as you said it. Do you have a proudest moment so far? Maybe a moment within the team or something that you've achieved? And again, knowing how fast-paced Formula One is, did you get to celebrate it? To say a proudest one's probably difficult. The win in Bahrain, so we'd only have one win as Aston Martin, which was in Bahrain a few years ago with Checo. And that was really special because lots of things obviously fell into place to do that but we were ready to pick it up and run with it and you know that was coming to the end of Checo's time with us and it just felt really nice and yeah we did we did actually go out that night which was it was really good night but that felt really special because podiums for us or any midfield team are so hard to come by and a win is just like next level and yes there was a lot of fortunate circumstances but that was really good I think you know, I remember my first podium with the team, which was Russia 2015. And that was sort of a point where I was pretty new to the pit wall. I was pretty new to the decision-making process. There was obviously a lot of support being offered to me at that time, but I felt like it was going to be okay. You know, we were going to be okay. We were going to do it. I think the stuff that makes me the most proud or maybe the most able to stand back and think about what I've achieved is when I go home or I get contacts from people at home or contacts from people in schools or, you know, the primary school I went to or whatever. At one point, I remember, you know, one of my little cousins saying they'd like a display because he doesn't see me that often. So they had like a display with me on it and having gone on to Formula One, I come from this really small school. And it's really lovely to be inspiring somebody to not think they can't do it. You know, and it's not that I ever thought I couldn't do it. I just wasn't aware it was a job. But it's lovely to be fit to give that sort of ambition to someone or answer those questions. And unfortunately now, you know, the questions are coming so thick and fast. You get so much communication. It's actually really difficult to answer them all. But it's really nice to sort of be allowing people to have that dream. I think F1's got so much better at it, you know. The whole marketing around it's exploded. There's so much information out there now that there wasn't out there 20 years ago when I was trying to pick my subjects or whatever. So it's really lovely to be fit to give a little bit of that back. Um, and that's the time where you feel proud. Like it's those points where people aren't expecting you to say that, you know, what, what your role is or what you do. Those are the bits that I think are, are the best bits. 
one of the questions I normally like to close on, but I want to ask it to you now because it's just such a perfect link. And that's what advice would you normally give to someone who's, you know, who, who wants to do the role that they've seen you do or want to work in Formula One in whatever respect they can because they've seen you? I find the advice pretty easy and that I'm sure you've done the same, but it was, it was just to keep working at it. Like I worked really hard to get to where I am in terms of giving up free weekends to just help out at a racetrack, whatever. But the few things that I would say are F1 in the range of jobs, like even across us two, the range of jobs, the range of roles is massive. So you need to figure out where you think you might sit in that. You don't have to get it right. Like, as you said in in your opening piece, I've done many roles within Formula One and they've just sort of like, I've sort of seen the next one and thought, oh, I'll get involved in that. And it's sort of like progressed as my career has gone. So you don't need to get it right first time, but a lot of it is just exploring the opportunities right there, asking for the opportunities, applying for everything. So during my time at university, the McLaren graduate scheme came up and I wasn't going to apply and my lecturer said, of course you need to apply. So a few of us applied and then we went for the interview and I went through the whole process thinking, well, let's see what happens. But if I'd never been pushed to apply for that, you know, my life would be so different. So you just need to apply for everything that comes up. If you don't get it, which, you know, sometimes you won't get things, just ask why, try and figure it out, see what you can prove and just keep going forward. And for me, work experience is so important. And it doesn't need to be in a recent team. It can be proven teamwork or proven uh, like a problem solving skill. Just something that builds your character. But yeah, just, just keep asking for stuff. Just keep asking for questions. Definitely. And don't be afraid of failure. My gosh, I think I still have them. I have letters because obviously when I was first applying, you know, it wasn't emails, it was letters. I still have letters, rejection letters from every single team, absolutely every single team. And I, I, I failed if you consider not getting the job. I failed for years, but then I didn't fail and I didn't waste the time either. I think whilst I was busy not getting those jobs, I got other jobs and it is, it's building that profile isn't it building that experience so that when the right opportunity comes along it's almost impossible for them to say no to you because you've covered every basis you've covered every box you've done everything you could but yeah I love how much information there is now perhaps it's not easier to get a job because there's so much interest there's so many more applicants but how much easier it is to find out about jobs about how things work about the right way to approach somebody and who to approach as well because just finding a name again as you said 20 years ago finding a name to send a letter to was that that was its own challenge I think I know the answer just because from what we talked about earlier but I wanted to ask you what motivates you I think learning is the thing that motivates me the most so you know I really and that's been the same I think through school and university I really struggle with being stagnant in whatever it is like things like you know, during the furlough period and stuff, just like learning new skills, like totally off the wall from what we were doing before. But I just really enjoy learning new things, improving, seeing what we can do better in in everything that I do, really. I imagine a bone of contention at home that there's always a DIY list. It's like there's always something that can be done differently or changed or whatever. And that's definitely, I think, what motivates, it's just doing better. Like I'll never look at something and go, oh, that's perfect just leave it and I'll always be like oh well if I did that again I'd change xyz 
in the things that you experience in the pursuit of learning that are nothing to do with your job? Do you find inspiration on how to do things differently within your job? Do you bring stuff from the outside? It's a weird one. I don't know why this is what comes to mind, but everyone thinks I must be really good at decision making in my life, which I'm totally not. So like on the pit wall, I need to make decisions in like 30 seconds or whatever, in like a lap, maybe less, depending on what's happening. But I'm still shit at deciding where to go for a restaurant at home or what I want for dinner or whatever. You know, like those decisions aren't any better because of what I do in work. So it definitely doesn't transfer that way is all is what I can say for definite. But people do assume I must be like really on it at home, which I'm not. Yeah, there's always lots of things like you build up experience, you know, as we got older in terms of dealing with people or communication or all that sort of stuff. And that's so important in what we do at the track. Just how to deal with other people, different characters, getting the right thing across. Even just the difference sometimes in what people say and what they mean. Really simple things that actually really make a difference if you're just trying to understand what's going on in the racing. So yeah, that's probably, yeah, probably it. At least you're not, you know, learning how to, I don't know, juggle and then deciding that juggling is going to be the way forward for strategy. <laughs> that's a terrible example. I could have, I could have been so much more. Better. That's, that's fine. It's a good example of what was, would not work. Um, but I want to touch on um, making decisions fast and I assume under pressure. And again, knowing you, I, I would picture you as being very calm whilst that's happening um but to me that's a stressful situation so how do you deal with stress how do you experience it and how do you cope with it it's really interesting when you think a lot of decisions on the pet wall happen really quickly a lot of them are highly stressed a lot of different opinions often and a lot of them have a massive impact on the on the outcome of the race there's very few things that you can do that have such a direct impact on on where we finish i sometimes get very stressed I'm pretty sure that nobody's going to argue with that statement. And that appears in, in various ways. I'm very fortunate to be, you know, the Irish female on the pit wall. My voice cuts through all others. So it's very clear when I'm speaking what's going on. And that's like being a real power that I didn't think about when I joined. And I imagine nobody did. But it's really obvious when I'm saying something and what's happening. So that was quite nice. But yeah, it is really stressful. I deal with it largely through trying to be prepared. So you've got loads of scenarios in your head, like if a safety car happens here, if it, if it rains, you've got lots of things in your head that you're trying to analyse. And then, because often decisions don't come in ones, often there's a few decisions that need to be made um, in a row. So it might be, are you going to stop this lap? What tyre? Blah, blah, blah. You know, it might be like a, a follow-on thing. But you just need to make the first big one first and then deal with the next in the line as they come rather than trying to trying to hit everything. Because it can become so overwhelming. Or let's say you've got two cars on track and you're trying to make the decision. Well, you know, one of them is going to reach the pillion first. So let's deal with that one first. And then and there's loads of little things like that that you can do. One of the things which I think is probably going to be a really interesting in case study at some point is since I handed my notice, I find the decision-making process 10 times easier than it's ever been before because I felt like the weight 
of expectation had lifted. It felt like for the first time ever, because we end up in this cycle of working hard, pushing hard, trying to improve, and that's all driven internally, not necessarily through the company. We never stop and reflect on what we've achieved or very rarely stop and reflect on what we've achieved. And it was only when I'd handed him a notice and said, well, I've achieved that, I've done that, I've made it to head strategy. You know, there's only 10 of those positions in the pit lane. That's done, I can mark that off. It brought this new level of confidence that meant when I was just making, I felt like I didn't need to prove myself anymore to anyone. I could just make what I thought was the right decision for the right reasons. And it didn't need to be so justified. And it was really incredible just how over the last six months decisions have become progressively easier. And not because it wasn't trying hard for the team, you know, because you're obviously still trying to, I really want them to do well. But it was really, yeah, it was really eye-opener just to sort of, like the calmness has really ramped up to the point now where, you know, I do remember what it was like pre that, but now I think, oh, I'm really calm at making decisions. But actually I know nine months ago I wasn't like calm. It's incredible though, isn't it? The weight of expectation but it's our expectation. It's not necessarily external. It's the pressure we put on ourselves and, and feeling the need to prove yourself. But that's always driven by us. It's not something that someone else is looking at you and going, what are you going to do next? It's a whole imposter syndrome thing of just always trying to feel like you're not good enough. And actually, no one had ever told me I wasn't good enough. It was just I always felt I needed to prove it. And then suddenly when you're leaving, you're like, oh, I don't need to prove that anymore. So just... It's, it's so weird. And it creeps on and off as well. Well, no, it creeps on and it just switches off. So that's, yeah, it's an incredible feeling. What do you love the most about motorsport? It's the adrenaline. For me and my job, personally, it's the adrenaline. So it's, you know, the start of the race when the cars are all driving off the grid together, the noise, the atmosphere, but it's just adrenaline. You don't know what's going to happen at turn one. You don't know what's going to happen going forward. And that is just, like, such an exciting bit. It's just... Those bits that you can't control are, are terrible, but in many ways really exciting. And yeah, it's that's that's the bit for me that I find the most interesting. And which bit are you less keen on? We spent a lot of late nights going through all the data to try and get, you know, we spent, we're there really late on a Friday, Friday and Saturday night, trying to analyse, trying to come up with a plan. So the late nights. And we've touched upon the advice that you'd give, but is there one bit of advice that you've been given that you still use to this day? I'm not really sure where it's come from, but the the drive to never stop improving. I think there was actually a suggestion at one point is to always keep asking why. So if, I don't know, another team stopped on that turn, why? And then if it's because they had a, you know, they wanted to do this, then why? Just keep going until you get to a point where it's inexhaustible. Just continuously asking that question will really drive your understanding of things and your learning. Whereas if you start to accept things too early, then then that's a bit negative. So I think that's a thing that I've tried to live by, if you like. That's a really good principle, though. If you're searching for the crux, what was the decision that drove everything? Keep asking why. It's a simple one. You'll remember it as well. So it's great. My final question to you, Bernie, and thank you so much for taking part today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. What are you looking forward to? Yeah, I'm looking forward to... it's it's. A, I'm a bit of an oddity, I think, in that I've only ever worked in Formula One. I've only ever worked in a team. 
since I left university, that's what I've done. I've obviously done, you know, jobs through in university and stuff, you know, and little cafes and things. But life on the outside, just even a little bit on the outside, because I'm still going to end up doing some stuff in F1, but just like normal life. Yeah, I think that's what I'm looking forward to the most at the moment. I, I think that'll change in time, but right now it's just like normal life. But if you don't feel like stretching too far from home, I highly recommend the whole of motorsport because there's an incredible industry out there full of gorgeous people and there's so much fun to be had in WEC and rallying and MotoGP and I'm not even going to try to name them all, welter and car, there you go, because, <laughs> but um, having had the blessing uh, and continuing to have the blessing of working across many disciplines, um, it's bloody brilliant out there. I can imagine, so yeah. Let's see. Have fun. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Manny. Thank you so, so much for taking part. No worries. Thank you. Oh, thank you to the brilliant Bernie Collins. It was such a joy to speak to her and I loved learning more about her role. It was also great to hear her approach to that incredible job. And I cannot wait to see what she does next. I'd like to thank the producer of this show, Press Play Productions. The awesome Tabitha is the one who turns our brilliant chats into the very nicely edited podcast you listen to each week, so thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform and leave a review if you can. Tell your friends, post about it on social media. It all means so much and it really helps get new people to find this podcast, especially as we're restarting. I read every message and every mention, by the way, and it means a lot. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is Pandea. That's P-A-N-D-E-A. Again, I read every message. I try to answer to them all too. And there's now a link in the show notes via which you can support the podcast directly should you wish to. It takes an awful lot of coffee to mix this show, as you can imagine, and every little bit helps. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.